You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen, amen. Isn't it amazing how a song can just take words and music and just say everything that your heart wants to say, but hasn't been able to say, and then you hear and you sing a song and you're like, yes, that is it, that is it. And so I'm so thankful for that song, so thankful for this team. Let's just thank the Lord. Uh, Let's just praise the Lord for the gifted people who serve so faithfully. Amen. Amen. Uh, what I love about that song is, is the contrast. There's all of, these, all of these contrasts that are laid out. And the predominant theme is there's death and then there's life. And the difference is Jesus. And uh, as we've been going through um, this, this amazing book, the book of Galatians, you can turn there right now. The ushers are going to come up and down the aisle for people who don't, who don't have a copy of the Bible with them. Just holler at them or put up your hand. The book of Galatians, especially in chapter 3 and, and heading into chapter 4, is also highlighting all of these contrasts. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 14, there was the contrast between are we saved by faith or are we saved by works? And then in chapter 3, verses 15 to 25, it was the contrast of are you living by the law or are you living by uh, the promise? And then as we come now to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, Paul's going to introduce a new contrast. The the, the contrast that is really the, the theme and the essence of the book of Galatians and this whole series is is sonship or slavery are we living like slaves or are we living like sons and and really uh, it all comes this is the heart of the book of Galatians everything we've been studying and learning so, so far comes right down to this truth right here and so it's absolutely crucial that we understand this contrast rightly and not just that we understand it but that we live it that we are not slaves but we are sons sons and daughters of God so I'm going to pray that God would help us to uh, to do that uh, right now and so God there are some things that we know we need to learn and we pray that you would teach us and God, there are some things that we, that we know about ourselves that need to change. And so we pray that you would transform us. And God, we know that neither of those things can happen unless we have faith. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would give us faith to believe. Faith to believe that your word is living and active. Faith to believe that your spirit is here with us. Faith to believe that you can transform lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us, Lord, the power to understand, Lord, that you would give us the the transformation that we're so desperately longing for, God, and that you would give us the faith. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So what we're going to see in this passage is three different aspects of, of what it means. What does God give us when he has transferred us from the realm of slavery to now the realm of being a, a part of his a family? What, what does that mean for us? The first thing it means is it gives us a new identity. It gives us a new identity. And so if you're taking notes today, you can jot that down. That, that moving from slavery to sonship gives us a new identity. Identity. Look at verse 26. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And you are Christ's. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. A new identity. This new identity says, verse 26, that we are sons of God. That is our new identity. Paul had said previously that we used to be imprisoned by the law. The law used to be our guardian, but now we are called sons of God. That is our new identity. And he makes it clear at the beginning of verse 26 that this happens in Christ Jesus. The reason why we have this new identity is because we have chosen to identify ourselves in Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Our only hope for ever being, having an identity of the Son of God is if we attach ourselves, if we place our faith in, if we are found in Christ who is the Son of God. And all of this happens through faith at the end of verse 26. It's by believing. It's not by any activity or work or merit on our own. It's by simply believing who Jesus is. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then you become a son or a daughter of God. And the most crucial word in verse 26 is that word all. You are all sons of God. It was so crucial for those churches at Galatia to understand that because they were divided ethnically. They had Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians. Gentile simply means part of the nations, everyone who's not Jewish. And Paul is saying to them, no, you are all sons of God. You're all part of God's family. Uh, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. That's John 1, 12. And then he explains it a little further in verse 27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How many people here have been baptized as a believer? You went underwater. Put, just put your hands up. Don't be shy. This isn't a trap or anything like that. That's great to see that so many people here have been uh, baptized uh, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, put your hand up again if after you got baptized, you kept your wet clothes on for the rest of the day. No, no one else. No, no one did that, right? That's what, that's what Paul is describing here in verse 27. He's saying, you were baptized and then you put on, from that point on, you put on different clothes. In fact, it became a, a tradition in the early church that when someone was baptized, the, uh, the, the church family um, would, would actually buy um, the, the person getting baptized a new set of clothes as a symbol saying, now, now put on Christ. You are different now. You are totally new. You see, Paul is explaining here this idea of having a new identity. And baptism is perfect for that, right? The meaning of baptism is that we are identifying with Christ so that what happened to Christ happens to us. So when you go under the water, it's like a burial. And so Christ died, and so we're identifying. It's like, it's like I died. And then Christ came up out of the water in newness of life, resurrected. And so we too, because Christ was resurrected, we're resurrected, and we live this new life. And then we get out of the water, and we put on new clothes, and we're clothed in Christ. See, clothing is a sign of our identity, isn't it? Now, all of us made a decision to put clothes on today. Thank you very much for doing that. It makes it a lot less awkward. But the clothes that we choose to wear, we're trying to say something to the people out there by what we're wearing. I mean, 
even if we aren't a vain person, even if we don't spend hours in front of the mirror, what we choose to wear, we're, we're communicating some things. There's, there's some symbolic importance to the clothes that we wear. Clothes is part of our identity, and our new identity is Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, who we are is that we are clothed in Christ. And, and this is an incredible thing. You know what? Uh, churches, you know, sometimes have sort of strict uh, dress codes. We don't really have that here at Harvest. Sometimes people come, they're wearing a suit and tie. Other people wearing shorts and sandals. And uh, as long as, you know, we understand what modesty is and we don't want to be a distraction to anyone like that, you can, you can come to Harvest Bible Chapel dressed however, however you want. But listen, in heaven, there's a strict dress code. You've got to come clothed in Jesus Christ. You've got to have Jesus' clothes on. And that's an incredible, this, that image is just so incredible. I mean, clothing is the closest thing to us, isn't it? I mean, our clothes go with us wherever we go. We're clothed in Christ. He is so close to us. He's with us wherever we go. And it's a sign of our identity. Uh, last night, uh, there was a, a group of men who put on uh, red and black and white clothes. And then there was a group of men who put on yellow and black and white clothes. Uh, the Ottawa Senators and the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Ray Kaprowski's pretty happy that Ottawa won last night. And, and so someone's clapping about that, I guess. But, but it, it, it was an identifier, wasn't it? Our, our clothes, they're, they're a sign of our identity. A police officer's dress in a certain way. Why? Because it's vitally important that we understand who a police officer is, so that we can turn to them for help, so that we can show them the respect that, that, that they are due because of the role that they play in our society. But listen, if, if, if you were to just dress up in a policeman costume, you could get arrested for that. Did you know that? To impersonate a, a constable? That, that, that is a criminal offense. Why? Because when someone sees you dress that way, they expect certain things of you. But loved ones, it's the same with being clothed in Christ. Because we are now, our core identity is that we are a Christian. That matters more than anything else. And when people look at us, they ought to see that. And the beauty is, listen, when God looks at us, when God the Father looks, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see our shame. All of that, we have been clothed with Christ. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? As soon as they sinned, the first thing they did was get out the sewing machine and start making clothes to cover their shame. But now we have been clothed in Christ because Christ covers the shame. We are clothed in his righteousness so that when the Father looks at us, he looks at us clothed in the righteousness of his Son. Not because of anything that we've done, but all because of what Jesus has done. Then look with me at verse 28. This is one of the most powerful statements of Christian identity and union in all of Scripture. It says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, we're clothed in Christ. And clothing is normally the way we, we differentiate from one another, isn't it? I mean, there's a, a certain way that men dress and a certain way that women dress. It helps differentiate. Now, that's getting more and more confusing in our world today, isn't it? And, in, in, and with regards to ethnicity, uh, certain cultures based on climate or just tradition, there's certain ways that certain people dress. But as our world is getting more and more connected, that's becoming less and less of a, less of a factor. I mean... It, 
It used to also be that, that based on the way someone was dressed, you could, you could tell whether or not someone was wealthy or whether or not someone was poor. But now it's getting more and more confusing. I mean, you've got really poor people living on credit dressed to the nines. And then you've got wealthy people going downtown Toronto to Saks Fifth Avenue. They're paying $450 for a pair of jeans that are stained and have rips in them. I mean, you see someone on the street and you're thinking, you're reaching in your pocket, man. I'm going to have to give this guy some money to get some food. And he walks right by you. He's got these tattered clothes. And then you hear, burp, burp. And he hops into a BMW. You see, but... Clothing is how we identify ourselves. It's how we differentiate from one another. But Paul says, no, 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 no. You are all one. You're all, clo- you're all wearing the same clothes. You're all clothed in Christ. And so you're not defined by your gender. You're not defined by your ethnicity or your nationality. You're not defined on where you fit uh, socioeconomically. No, the, the core of who you are, when you look in the mirror and, and ask yourself, who am I? You are saying, I am a child of God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what Galatians 3.28 is all about. We're all one. We're all wearing the same clothes. Now, unfortunately, the the power of Galatians 3.28 is is robbed so often of this verse because it's lifted out of its context and it's applied into some other context. The context here clearly has to do with identity, doesn't it? We're sons of God. We're baptized in Christ. We're clothed in Christ. But some people try to take this verse here and apply it to the way the family structure should happen or the way church leadership should happen or the way the economy should function. That's not what Paul is getting at. When Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, he's not saying that there's no, there's no distinction between nationalities and that we should ignore those things. No, I mean, in Galatians 2 verse 15, Paul was talking to Peter. He says, we're Gentiles. So he says, we're Jews by birth. I mean, the book of Revelation, it says that every tribe, tongue, and nation is going to be there in heaven, praising God. Those distinctions matter. And so we don't, we don't ignore them. We celebrate them and we, because we're united, not around those things, but we're united around Christ. I mean, furthermore, um, when it says slave or free, uh, Paul is not saying that the slaves don't have to report to work tomorrow after they read Galatians. No, he's... He's, he's, he's saying that, that your fundamental identity is not where you fit economically, whether you find yourself enslaved or whether you find yourself a master or somewhere in between. And for us reading this in the 20, 21st century, in light of everything that happened in the African slave trade in Europe and in America, it's hard for us to, to think that Paul would not tell the masters to set their slaves free. But slavery was completely different in the Greco-Roman world. It wasn't based on race or ethnicity. In fact, the, the New Testament in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 actually forbids what took place in the African slave trade. It says, it, says it, it is against God's law to capture someone, take them away, and make them a slave. That's forbidden in the Bible. And so slavery was, we don't have time to get into the economics of slavery in the Greco-Roman world, but Paul was not saying that masters should, should no longer employ or own slaves, or that slaves then should no longer respect their masters, because that would contradict everything he said and in the book of Colossians or the book of Ephesians about hard work and also the responsibility not just of the slaves but the responsibility of the master. And the, the, whole, the whole book of Philemon is all about that as well. Uh, furthermore, he's, when he's saying there's not male or female, again, it's a celebration. 
It's a celebration of how, we, how men and women are different and yet united because we're all clothed in Christ. It's not saying that men should be treated exactly the same way as women and women should be treated exactly the same way as men. It's not saying that they're the same. Listen, to be equal with someone does not make you identical. Men and women are different and so they have different roles. And so that's why in the Bible you have, a, you have different roles for leadership in the church and leadership in the home. And there's a, there's a clear guide that God gives for how we are supposed to relate to one another. Listen, the New Testament is not calling for us to be androgynous. It's not, it's not eliminating all of those barriers. It's saying these, these, these distinctions, there's things that we can celebrate, they still exist. But the amazing thing is that in Christ Jesus, we are one. Are you following me? Because it's vital for us to understand that. Because Galatians 3.28 is so often just ripped out of its context and applied in other situations. It has to do with our identity. And so it doesn't matter if you are still a slave and someone is your boss or your master. What matters is that, because your, your core identity is not that you're a slave. Your core identity is that you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a male or a female and have certain opportunities or, 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 or responsibilities based on your gender in the family or in the church because your core identity is who you are in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 29 he says, and, and if you are in Christ, or if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so what Paul's doing here now is talking about identity. He's linking it all the way back to what he said in chapter 3, verse 16. And do, do you remember how the word offspring is a collective singular? It's a word like sheep, where it, it can be spoken of in the singular or the plural. It can be talking about one, or it can be talking about a whole group. Offspring is like that. And I mean, Paul, he emphatically is hammering home when it says offspring. It's about one person. It's only talking about one, and it's Christ. But then you get to verse 29, and he's saying, oh, no, offspring's plural. It's all of us. And so how does it work? Well, you've got to understand it in sequence. Christ is the offspring. And it says in verse 29, if you are Christ's, if you are in him, then we too, then offspring, but if you understand that offspring is singular because it's pointing to Christ, then offspring becomes plural when we place our faith in him. And everything that Christ deserves, we receive which is the amazing power of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 1, begins with the same theme of being an heir or having an inheritance. It says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Here's the, here's the second aspect of, of what we receive when we move from slavery to sonship, is we receive a new freedom. We receive a new freedom. Uh, verses uh, 1 and 2, it's using this illustration. There's an underage heir. Someone who is, in, is going to receive a huge inheritance, but they're too young to be able to manage it properly. That's what's being uh, described here. And really, the illustration is, is, is pointing back to the relationship between the law and the promise. Do you remember this diagram about how Abraham was the one who received the promise? 
And then centuries later, the law was given through Moses. And it was only there for a time. It found its fulfillment. Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So the promise goes on. And verse 1 and 2, it's illustrating this. So verse 1 says, the heir, as long as he is a child, and then it says, is no different from a slave. It's living under the law. It says, Though he is the owner of everything, it all belongs to him. But he is under guardians and managers. And then it goes on, until the date set by his father. So, so Master George is running around Downton Abbey with his nanny and the servants. He's in charge of nothing. But he's the heir. But he's too young to receive the inheritance. Now I know it's Mother's Day, so I threw that Downton Abbey illustration in just, just for all of you. Love you. So... He's the heir, and everything's coming to him. It's the same way. The promise was given. We we were all heirs of the promise. But the, the law came for a season to prepare the way for when the promise would be fulfilled. And so that's what's being described here in verses 1 and 2. Now look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. More about that phrase a little bit later. Then we come to verses 4 through 7, which is the heart of the book of Galatians. We covered this on Easter weekend together as a church, and the whole book of Galatians is pointing towards uh, this uh, short little paragraph. But, But when the fullness of time had come, the time established by the Father, the time in which the promised offspring would finally come, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. He didn't create his son. He sent his son because the son was eternally pre-existent. He, he is fully God, but he's also fully human because it says here that he was born of a woman. So he's fully God and he's fully human. And so he is that promised offspring of Abraham. It also says that he's born under the law. He was born in that time period. The promise had been given, but the law was given through Moses. And Jesus is born under that time period. He is born under the law. But this is why he came. Verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law. To redeem means to pay a price to set a slave free. And all the way up to the book of Galatians, Paul's been saying that the law has had us in prison. The law has had us under guardians who are watching over us and and constraining us. And Jesus has come to set us free, to redeem us. But here's the key phrase. It says, so that. Why did Christ die? Why did he set us free? Why did he go to the cross to take all of this pain and all of the punishment and all of the shame that we deserve? And why did he clothe us in his righteousness? Why did he go to all of that trouble? It wasn't just to set us free. There's a so that. He redeemed us so that something else could happen. He redeemed us so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, the gospel would have been amazing if it was just a gospel of freedom. If that's all that there was, then that would be worth praising God for. I mean, if he wanted to just give us a second chance, if he found us in our slavery to sin and said, you know what, I'm going to set you free and you're no longer going to struggle with this, and he paid the redemption price, that would have been great. 
But the gospel goes so much deeper than that. It's not just that God said, okay, you're free, go off by yourself. No, God says, okay, you're free, now come here. He says, I want you to be part of my family. I want to adopt you. I love you. I want to give you an inheritance. I want to make you an heir like my son, Jesus Christ. That is the power of the gospel, that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6 says, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit. The same verb that's used to say, sent the Son. He sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts to transform us, crying, Abba, Father. We mentioned this on Easter, how the whole Trinity is mentioned right there in verse 6. The, the, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And then it says in verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we have this new identity. We have this new freedom. Loved ones, we also have this, this new relationship. He wants to relate to us as sons. But I'm sure some, some, some of the women here are just thinking, well, in light of Galatians 3.28, I'm sure some of the men are wondering this too. If we are all one, would it really just kill Paul to say, you know, sons and daughters? Why? Why does he, why does he emphatically only say sons? You see, sometimes uh, in the New Testament, especially when the word brothers is used, when masculine pronouns are used, it's meant to include uh, the females as well. And, and that's true in this sense, but you need to understand something about Greco-Roman culture and the way inheritances worked. You see, it was based on something called primogeniture, which is, which is the idea that the eldest son and only the eldest son receives the inheritance or the, the, the lion's share of the inheritance. The other brothers get next to nothing and the daughters get less than next to nothing. And so if, again, another Downton Abbey reference. So that's why... That's why the inheritance doesn't go to Mary or to Edith. It goes to Matthew Crawley or, or, to, or to Master George. It, it, it's, it's primogeniture. It had to go to the firstborn son, the eldest male relative. And so to, if, if Paul were to write, you are sons and you are daughters, the, the, in that culture at that time, the women would, would have been kind of like, oh, shucks. I guess the guys are getting all of the inheritance. But Paul emphatically says sons here to, to include, not to exclude the women, but to include them. And says God wants to treat you like a son, like his son. And even though you have no hope as a female for an earthly inheritance, you have a heavenly inheritance. Everything that Christ deserves has been promised and given to you because God has wanted to start this new relationship with you. And for those of us who are still chafing under this, well, I don't really, I'm a, I'm a woman. I don't, I, don't want to, I don't want to be identified as a son. Well, you need to understand that, that your brothers in Christ have to, somewhat awkwardly, learn to embrace and celebrate another metaphor in the Bible, the bride of Christ. That's probably something that might resonate with you, you know, beautiful dress and flowers, all that, but the guys are kind of like... It just doesn't quite fit. But listen, you can't have the privileges of being married to Christ unless you're the bride of Christ. And you can't have the privileges of being an inheritance or receiving an inheritance with Christ unless you're considered a son. 
That's, that's what, so we all got to flex here uh, in, the, in the gender uh, divide. So we have this new relationship. Now look at verse 8. It says, Formerly, you did not know God. You didn't have a relationship with him. You were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. He's talking specifically right now to the, to the, the Gentile Christians who before they became Christians, they didn't know the Old Testament. They weren't Jewish before. So they bowed down to all of these different gods and goddesses. And sometimes when we read about the way that they lived back then, we think, well, that's so crazy that someone would bow down to a statue and think that bowing down to a statue would, would, would mean that they would become more fertile or, or more productive or that they'd have more power or more influence. Well, listen, our culture is no different. We just kind of skip the middleman. We've sort of toppled over the statues, but we still serve these gods. Because ultimately, back then, the idols, the statues, they were just a means to an end. You didn't bow down to the, the, the goddess of fertility because you thought that the statue was so beautiful and you really believed that it was a god. No, you bowed down to it because someone told you that if you do this, then your fields will be more plentiful and that you'll make more money. They wanted more money, so if I want more money, i got to bow down to the statue, I'll do that. Now, is our world any different? We want more money. We'll do whatever it takes. We'll worship any god in order to get more money. And there were gods of, of pleasure. There, there were gods of power. All of these things. And listen, we worship all of these gods today. We don't bow down to a statue, but it's still, it's still an issue in all of our hearts. We worship things that aren't gods. We expect the things of this world to give us things that only God can give us. Verse 9 says, but now... Now that you have come to know God, to be in relationship with him, and he says, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. He says, how can you turn back? Since you have this relationship, how can you turn back? What are they turning back to? It says, Turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Well, that's a phrase that's mentioned up in verse 3 as well. It's not, it doesn't occur very often in the New Testament, but there's two basic meanings of elementary principles. The first one has to do with, with language, ABC or music, do, re, mi. And it's, it's the basics, it's the fundamentals, it's what you learn in, in elementary education. So that was one way to, to define it. So, so Paul said, don't go back to the elementary things. You've moved on to advanced things in the gospel. The other way this word is used, the elementary principles, is that it's the, not the elementary things of language or of music, but the elementary things of, of the whole universe. So things like soil, dirt, things like wind, air, things like the sun and the stars and the moon. And, and because the world was so hyper-religious those elementary principles, they all became objects of worship. There were gods that were in charge. You, you, you wanted good soil, so you worshiped the soil god. You wanted rain to come, so you worshiped the sun god to lay off a little bit, to allow the rain god to come in. And, and all of those elementary principles were, were part of the pagan religion. 
And Paul here, he's not, he's not using it in the educational aspect, the ABCs of the do re mis. He's using it in the pagan religious. Because if you look back at verse 3 when the word is used, it says the elementary principles of the world. Not the elementary principles of the Old Testament or the Bible or the law. It says the world. And then uh, later on in, in uh, verse 9 when it's used again, it says world. And also it's in the context of slavery. It says how can you turn again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. In the previous verse, in verse 8, he just mentioned slavery. He says, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. So he's talking about pagan religion, but look what he says in verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. Well, what religion observes days and months and seasons and years? And what, what religion were the, were the Galatians struggling with? Were the Galatians really worshipping the pagan gods anymore? No, that's not the reason why Paul wrote this book. The days and the months and the seasons, those were days like the Sabbath and the Old Testament feasts and the year of Jubilee and all of these things that the Jewish Christians were telling the non-Jewish Christians that they needed to still abide by in order to have a relationship with God. And then Paul says, listen, if you're going to go back to the Sabbath and the feasts and trying to obey the law, he says, I'm afraid that I've labored over you in vain. That's pretty strong language. He's using that phrase to really awaken them here. He hasn't given up on them. He doesn't, he doesn't think it's vain or else he wouldn't have written this letter. But what Paul is saying here is he's saying that if you try to observe the Sabbath, if you try to follow all of the dietary laws and all of the other rules and regulations and rituals in the Old Testament, he is saying that if you try to do that, you are just as lost as someone who is bowing down to a stone statue. What you need to understand is that all false religion is based on law. If you take an intro to religion class in high school or university or college, you will find that every single false religion is based on law. Do these five things. Pray this. Do this. And God will accept you. Christianity is unique because it is not based on law. So you need to understand, all false religion is based on law. A religion is still false even if it's based on God's law. And that was the problem in Galatia, is that they were creating a new, what they called another gospel. And Paul says, there is no other gospel. You have created your own false religion. And if you're going off and thinking that you are going to somehow please God by the way that you're living and the things that you're doing, he is saying, you are as lost as someone who is bowing down to a statue. He's saying it's about relationship. You're not earning your way. You can't have a relationship to a stone statue. And you can't have a relationship with God if you are trying to earn favor with him based on the things that you do. Verse 9 says, but now that you have come to know God, now that you have a relationship with him, and then he says, or rather, or more importantly, to be known by God. Not just that you chose him, but the deeper you go in your Christian life, you understand it wasn't just that I chose God, but that God chose me. And it's not just about how much I love God. It's about how much God loves me. Tim Keller sums this up beautifully in this short little paragraph. He says, the great and central basis of Christian assurance is not how much our hearts 
are set on God, but how unshakable his heart is set on us. And if we begin to grasp that we are known by God, we won't seek to bolster our self-image or standing before him through our works. Why would you turn back now that you know God, now that you are known by God? Why would you turn back to the empty things of this world, like pagan religion, trying to get more money or more pleasure or more power in your life? Why would you go back to the things of this world of religion, all of the do's and don'ts and trying to earn your way to God? Why would you turn to those things when God has set his heart on you? When God has known you and that he's made it possible for you to know him, that God has loved you and made it possible for you to love him. Fundamentally, loved ones, the Christian life really begins to happen for us when we know who we are and when we know what we are. Who we are, sons and daughters of God. What we are, we are free. Why would we turn back to these things? Let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, I know that in a, a room this size right now, there would be uh, any number of uh, situations or circumstances that people uh, find themselves in, where they are tempted to or are right now uh, fully enslaved to either the pleasures of this world or the pursuit of power or possessions who have turned away from a relationship with you trying to find something else, Lord. I know that there are others who, are, who have created this, this system, Lord, of checkmark Christianity, God, that's, that's based on proving to you how much we love you and how committed we are to you rather than delighting in the fact that you are committed to us and that you love us. God, I pray that you would set us free. God, for those who are legalistic, set us free. God, for those who are licentious and who are living a, a, a life of debauchery, God, set us free. Show us, God, your love to us. Draw us close to you. And God, I pray right now, Lord, that as we lift our voices in song. I pray that your spirit would move in our midst as we sing what has really become just the, the anthem of this series, God, that we are no longer slaves, but that we are children of God. Be with us. Be present here with us. Impress these truths on our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together and sing with all our hearts. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.